Hey everyone, I'm Elad from Astrolab Diagnostics and welcome to this special episode of Single Cell Meets where we will discuss the COVID-19 crisis. I'm joined today by Dr. Michal or Miki Tal. Uh, Miki got her PhD from Yale in 2012 where she worked with Dr. Akiko Iwasaki. Um, she studied the immune signaling of virally infected cells and how these immune responses are impacted by age. Uh, and she is currently a researcher and instructor at Stanford University. Mickey runs the Immune Fever Twitter account and has recently recorded a highly informative coronavirus for non-virologists video that has close to 10,000 views on YouTube. So hello, Mickey, and thank you for joining us today. Hello. So uh, in the email you sent me just before this discussion, uh, you mentioned interesting parallels between uh, SARS-CoV-2 and flu in how they differently impact um, older patients. And do you mind elaborating a bit on that? Absolutely. Um, so in 2016, um, we had a paper from the Iwasaki lab where we showed that um, interferon responses and interferon dependent responses, which are normally the, the critical component of our antiviral responses, are actually diminished with age. Um, and Kind of paradoxically, at the same time, your pro-inflammatory signaling, like your IL-6 signaling and flamsome signaling, is actually increased. Um, so, so you have, you know, we all know that our, our B cell and T cell responses wane with age, so our antibodies aren't as good. We have thymic involution, so we're not making great antibodies anymore. We're not making great T cells anymore, and those are really important aspects of these antiviral responses. But additionally, in terms of our innate response, these interferon-dependent responses are so critical um, for, for really keeping the virus um, at bay and preventing it from replicating. Um, and so in the absence of those, what we're seeing, what we saw um, with um, older um, patients and mice um, was that people had, in the absence of, of having effective interferon responses, they actually had higher pro-inflammatory responses. And this can actually set you up for a bad response in the lung. So now you have the combination of you have more virus than you should have there because you're not effectively controlling it. And then we have the aspect of how tolerant you are to that virus. So you can think of many occasions where we have viruses, we have bacteria, and we're tolerant to them. And so they actually don't do us that much harm. Um, and, and in these cases, if our immune system is overreacting, this problem, this is actually a problem in tolerance. And this is this hyperinflammatory state that can be very pathological in the lung. Um, and it can lead to pneumonia and, and, and have and some of the kind of worse outcomes of that. So what we saw there was actually in the mouse model, which lacked effective interferon responses, we saw that a lot of um, the pathology was actually coming from these inflammasomes um, and, and neutrophils, you know, secreting out their, their um, nucleus, so this netosis, where then there's a lot of DNA and just very sticky. Um, and, and then kind of problematic. So we also showed that breaking that up, um, either interfering with the inflammasome signaling or breaking up these neutrophils um, was actually very beneficial in this mouse model. So let me read this back to you to make sure I understand. The interferon response goes down. Mm -hmm. the, the immune system compensates for this with a higher pro-inflammatory response. 
and that right. leads to lower tolerance to the infection. Yes, exactly. Interesting. That's exactly right. And you see, you saw this with the flu. And that's exactly right. So we saw that with the flu. And the thing that's important to note that's very different between the flu and what we're seeing with this SARS-CoV-2 is that with the flu, you mostly get a secondary pneumonia. So what you get with flu, some people do get a primary pneumonia where the flu is actually causing the pneumonia. But with most people, what you get is this bad cytokine environment, which then sets you up to not be able to fight bacteria very well, and then you get a bacterial pneumonia, which we call a secondary pneumonia. That is some component of what's happening here in SARS, especially in the patients that are, are going on to be these most critical cases and the fatalities. So that, that is part of it, but more of what we're seeing with SARS-CoV-2 is a primary pneumonia. So where the virus itself is causing the pneumonia, not even needing a secondary bacterial infection. And the timeline of it reflects that. Interesting. And um, actually, maybe we should take a step back for a minute. And, and the COVID-19, so just to make sure I got the terminology correct, COVID-19 is the name of the disease, the infection, and the name of the virus is SARS-CoV-2. And it belongs to the coronavirus uh, family. Uh, could you give a bit of a review of the coronavirus family as a whole? Because Sure. Sure. So most of the coronaviruses that we, <clears throat> sorry, that we interact with actually just um, cause the common cold. So we have multiple different viruses that can cause the common cold. A significant portion of common colds are actually caused by rhinovirus, which is from a totally different family. But within the coronavirus family of viruses, and they get that name because of the spike protein on their outer surface, which looks kind of like a crown around the, around the virus. So um, you have these, um, you have part of the coronavirus family and the part that we're most used to interacting with causes the common cold and it does that seasonally. Um, and, and we have frequent encounters with it. Um, there are two um, previous events where a coronavirus, just like SARS-CoV-2 has now done, has crossed over from an animal reservoir into humans and, uh, and gotten the ability to transfer from human to human. Um, and at that point, they become very dangerous. So, um, so the two other times that this has happened with these non-cold-causing um, coronaviruses is one is with MERS, and that's M-E-R-S, um, and that actually goes that kind of jumps from camels to humans, um, and then it can um, transfer between humans. Luckily, um, transfer from human to human is not very infectious, um, so you don't end up infecting a lot of other people when you're infected, and that's very lucky because MERS is very serious, um, and also very, it's even more resistant, so it's, um, you know, for MERS, we do know that it can have uh, fecal-oral transmission, which, which um, signifies that it's a pretty hardy virus. So with SARS, the first SARS that happened um, was a similar event like this um, from um, a bat crossover. And um, what happened there is that there was a small outbreak. It was very infectious, but it got controlled. Um, long before this point that we are at now with this SARS. And I think that a 
a lot of the countries that were involved in that first SARS outbreak learned a lot um, and, and, and enacted a lot of measures into their healthcare systems to be prepared for something like that coming back. And I think the U.S. is seeing how unprepared we were um, and, and some other countries as well, like Italy, um, you know, it's, it's really showing kind of how prepared different healthcare systems were for, for handling a crossover event like this, which with a lot of infectivity, human to human. So I think that you're highlighting the, the tragedy in the lack of preparedness. And you talked about, about MERS. This was, I think, 2012 was the first incidence of MERS, so, if I recall correctly. Yeah, so MERS has crossed over multiple times, um, mm -hmm. and people can get it from different interactions with camels. Um, and it's, um, so, so it, it continues, there continue to be crossover events, but they're usually very small um, and, and kind of contained to local and, clusters. And SARS was 2002-2003, if I recall correctly. Um, so for SARS-CoV-2, do we have any hypothesis on what's the event or series of events that led to its transmission to humans? And yeah. how is it different than the common cold that these viruses usually, uh, usually cause? Yeah, so those are great questions. Um, what we think is, so most of SARS-CoV-2 looks a tremendous amount like a, a strain of coronavirus that was circulating in bats. And there's actually been papers on this in 2015 and 2016 that had surveyed the bat population and identified that there were circulating strains that were very, very close to acquiring human-to-human -human transmission, um, much like what had happened with SARS. And what it seems to have happened is that there was a recombination event actually between um, one of those circulating bat viruses and um, a coronavirus that's normally found in the pangolin, um, which I never heard about before this, um, but a very unfortunate recombination event there happened, which gave this virus um, the right spike protein so that it could actually interact with our own ACE2 receptor. And, and the cells in our body that express ACE2 seem to be informing us a lot about the pathology that this virus is causing and the symptoms that people are getting. But that was the critical event that needed to happen for that, that coronavirus to get a spike protein that could actually interact um, with our own ACE2 receptor. And that's a good segue. Let's talk about mechanics for a bit. How does, how does viral infection of this type look and how does the immune response, uh, what kind of response does the immune system mount in these events? Okay, so that's a great question. So for the virus infection to take hold, the virus has to get into a cell. Of course, it can't do anything without our cells replicating it um, and providing everything it needs to make its own progeny and, and, and secrete. So um, for that to happen, um, it's got to bind to these ACE2 receptors. These ACE2 receptors are expressed um, on um, different cell types, and um, primarily the ones that we're thinking about right now the most are these um, cells in the lung that are called AT2 cells. Um, they have very high expression of ACE2, and also um, the lining of our gut um, has very high expression of ACE2. And I think 
um, also um, cells that are involved. Um, I'm actually just going to find this for you. I have um, so type two alveolar cells, which are in the lung. Um, the cells that line our esophagus, um, epithelial cells, um, and enterocytes. So those are the ones that are are kind of lining your digestive tract. Um, and so what's What's really concerning here is that we have both respiratory symptoms and we also have some digestive systems. Um, and that makes it, I think, um, slightly different than the, the kind of classic respiratory viruses you see, though most of the symptoms do seem to overlap a lot, like um, flu, but there do, does seem to be an additional digestive component in some people. And um, so that's the mechanism of how the virus infects us. How does the immune system respond to that? Okay, so what normally happens in response to viruses is that you have this interferon-dependent response. So interferon is a cytokine that we've been thinking about, which is incredibly potent, and there's been you know, I don't um, years and years of research on it. I think sixty years or something um, that we've been investigating interferon responses. What we know is that there are hundreds of genes that are what we call interferon stimulated genes. So if you even just treat with recombinant interferon, you can get this whole program of genes to come on. And these interferon stimulated genes have really important effector functions in controlling different viruses. And one thing that we already know for SARS-CoV-2, um, thanks to a lot of the um, research that's been coming out in um, PubMed, um, sorry, in uh, bioarchives is, um, that Ly6E, Ly6E, is an important interferon-stimulated receptor, uh, sorry, an important interferon-stimulated gene, which um, can control SARS-CoV-2. So it's one of these important effectors that comes up in an interferon-dependent manner. But then we also have some complicating factors, like the fact that ACE2 is also has interferon-dependent expression, which is very complicated here because it's the, also the receptor for the virus. So a virus-infected uh, cell is um, producing interferon. It's calling in immune cells to produce interferon. That interferon expression is also going to lead to upregulation of the receptor for this virus. So um, that's kind of an unfortunate trick on the immune response in this context. Um, but what's then going to happen is that a lot of immune cells are going to flood in to try to control this, and it's going to be your usual suspects. So um, B cells are going to come in to, to start trying to produce antibody. T cells are going to be really important in killing infected cells. So we're, we're going to mount a really important adaptive response, which is going to be important in controlling this. And this is where age differences start to come in because kids are really hardwired to make very good adaptive immune responses. Whereas as we age, our ability to mount good adaptive immune responses to new insults um, is significantly reduced. So um, the other thing that's happening is that the innate immune system is also trying a whole bunch of things. So specifically, myeloid cells like your monocytes and macrophages um, are, are coming in um, and secreting a lot of inflammatory cytokines um, in addition to interferon, and that's where we can start to get in trouble. 
So the question really starts to become, is the immune system going to be effective at controlling the virus and getting rid of it? In which case you're going to be set up to recover really well. Um, or are you now going to go into um, a state of this kind of hyper-inflammatory state, which can be really pathological and Because if you imagine you need your airways open for, for maximum air exchange. And if you now have a lot of immune cells crossing into the lung, um, they're messing with that air exchange. They're causing a lot of inflammation in there. And this is what um, starts to lead you into the state of um, pneumonia um, and not being able to get enough air. And this sends us back to the discussion we had at the beginning of this of this call, where exactly. if the um, if the pro-inflammatory response is too strong, and that comes from the innate immune system, that could lead to respiratory issues and other clinical uh, complications. Exactly. So I think what we're really starting to think about in terms of treatment here is a two-pronged approach. So we're trying all these different treatments that could possibly have direct antiviral effectivity. So whether that's um, remdesivir or other direct antiviral drugs or neutralizing antibodies that are made against the virus itself, or if we are um, trying to either in combination or separately can dampen some of these pro-inflammatory immune responses. And, um, um, and, and there you have to be really careful because you don't you know, you don't want to use steroids at a time like this. You don't want to dampen the entire immune system. You just want to dampen the, you know, the pro-inflammatory elements that are going out of control um, while you still are mounting or trying to mount an effective response. And to clarify, the innate immune response is usually a good thing. It allows the body to defend itself while the adaptive immune system is gearing up. But at right. this point, it's causing a complication. That's right. So for most of the things that we, for most things, it's so good that we don't even notice it's working. Um, so innate immune responses are all of our defenses starting from our skin and just our barriers that we have in place and the things that we have on our skin um, all the way into these, you know, uh, macrophages and dendritic cells and other, and, and all the cytokines cytokines that they can produce. So there's a whole range of things within the innate immune response. Most of them are really great at protecting you from, from all of your non-sterile environment that you're constantly exposed to. Um, every once in a while they miss though, um, and, and that's where we, we can see some actual immune-mediated pathology, where your immune system is actually hurting you in its attempt to try to protect you. And um... I wanted to ask you, how does, how does SARS-CoV-2 differ from, let's say, the flu, or even specific instances of the flu, like H1N1? Uh, okay. So it looks like this, one to be, this might be one of them, but maybe you can elaborate on other differences. Yeah. So let me first start by a lot of the symptoms are actually overlapping in terms of um, if you have the flu or if you have SARS-CoV-2, the interesting thing is that the flu hits you like a ton of bricks. So it's this, what we call sudden onset. So suddenly you can't get out of bed or you, the symptoms that you're getting are very um, severe. Whereas what's happening with SARS seems to be a slower buildup than that. And that is actually very dangerous for transmission because in the first couple of days, People actually don't understand yet the severity 
of how sick they are. Um, and, and when they're showing up to the hospital, they've already several days into this. Um, so it's not like they're realizing on day one, that this is very serious. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's one major difference from flu. Another, um, some of the other things that are different from flu are then go back to um, the fatality percentages, right? So we are trying to learn a lot from the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic because there are a lot of parallels um, with that Spanish flu um, in terms of it, it was very infectious, very transmissible and very fatal um, in terms of percentages. And the world was interacting at that time in a way kind of like we do today where we have a lot of world travel and a lot of exposure um, to people from other parts. So, um, so I think that actually from that particular flu pandemic, there is a lot of comparing that we can do and there's a lot that we can learn from those responses and what was effective and what wasn't. I think where we have to make a big, dis- a big, a big um, uh, kind of uh, contrast here is that this is nothing like a seasonal flu. So this is nothing like the flu that we see every year that a lot of people are already immune to. We're seeing something new for the first time. This may go on to be a common cold that will stay with us year after year after this. But if you imagine right now, if every infected person infects two or three other people, that grows exponentially. If by the time it comes at us again, if half of everybody is immune, um, then, you, then you can see that it's not going to grow exponentially like that. Then one person will infect one other person and it'll just kind of, it'll behave in a very different way. And a lot of these immune responses will then chalk up to having a much milder disease. So, um, so we do think that in the future, this could become a, you know, this could become a common cold virus that enters into our normal circulation, just like um, some of these other coronaviruses that we're used to interacting with. Okay, that makes sense. And um, I do sense there's a bit of speculation here around mutations and uh, how much of, uh, of long-term immunity do we yeah. actually build for coronavirus? So yeah. could you talk a bit about the mechanics surrounding that? Yeah, let's talk about what we know. So there was a monkey study that was really promising Um, which showed that you could infect monkeys, they would make antibodies, um, and the first line of antibodies that they make would be this IgM. That IgM would then convert to IgG, which is a much more kind of protective, long-term type of antibody for antiviral responses. Um, So they were making detectable amounts of IgG, and when they were um, reinfected um, or given a challenging dose, Uh, 28 days later, they were protected. Um, So we can be cautiously optimistic about that. We're also not seeing in the human population a lot of reinfection um, of people who were infected. And we are seeing IgM convert to IgG. So people are making antibodies. Some people are making really good neutralizing antibodies. Um, And there's a grassroots effort to try to use antibodies from people who have recovered to um, rescue the people who are not ma- managing to make really good antibodies um, and, and to cure them of the virus in that way. 
the big problem is that we make antibodies also to the common cold circulating coronaviruses now. And they may protect you within that season, but then by next season, your immunity kind of wanes and, um, and the virus is a little bit different. So, so we have that element to it the same way um, that we need to get new flu vaccinations every year. So one thing that we really think we're going to need to get good immune responses, safe immune responses, is to have a good vaccine and just try to have a lot of people um, that are immune. Um, and, it, and it may be something that we would need to update um, if the virus does you know, change enough away from the immunity that we've made. Hopefully, the immune responses that we're going to make will, will be enough to protect us from this round. And hopefully, we can have a vaccine available by the next time it comes back. One thing that's promising is that the first SARS outbreak, um, people did make long-term immunity. Um, and so, you know, so that's hopeful. Um, that that maybe that's going to happen here as well. Yeah, and um, and I appreciate how you are very balanced in the review you're giving. It's possible it's going to be like Sarah, like the original SARS that sort of dissipated and disappeared, or it could be really a new threat to our health that comes up every year and is part of the same cycles of vaccine we're facing. Yeah. And uh, I actually want to use this opportunity. You mentioned the attempt to uh, the grassroots attempt to use uh, antibodies for treatment. I want to give a shout out to Mount Sinai in New York. Uh, New York City has become one of the epicenters in, um, in the US. And um, if you had coronavirus and you live in New York City, please reach out to Mount, to Mount Sinai because they're looking for plasma donors uh, uh, for antibodies for, um, as part of treatment uh, attempts. Um, so if you have been sick with coronavirus in New York, please reach out to Mount Sinai. Um, and I do, I do also want to interject that other centers are starting this up as well. So basically, anybody who has already recovered and is at least post 14 days out from their recovery, um, you may be a very important resource um, for protective antibodies. And even if you're outside of New York, it's worth seeing if there is a project going on collecting convalescent serum. Um, I, I'm seeing um, more and more of these start to pop up in different locations. Um, where, where people are really trying to investigate if we can use this during this outbreak. Okay, that's great to know. And um, maybe we'll use this video and actually promote it a bit more so people are aware of it. Yeah, there's a website actually where they've started to, um, to, to try to gather more of this. Um, so I can send you the link. Oh, that would be great. So taking, uh, going back to your previous comment, you mentioned LY6E mm -hmm. and from my basic knowledge of immunology, I'm familiar with LY6C and LY6G, which are markers for myeloids, macrophages, neutrophils, many other cells in the mouse. Is LY6C the same family of proteins? So, um, oh, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why LY6E got its name. I don't know if it's in within the same family, you know. Um, with all the CDs, those are all just kind of order of discovery. I don't know for the Ly6. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, but there are some um, mouse studies on it that are very exciting. Um, and um, so, yeah. 
And how about we talk about this for, for a few minutes? Uh, the single cellmate's viewership is, is, most, is mostly immunologists, clinicians, and I think everyone would like to hear more about some of the latest research. You mentioned that there is a lot of papers going on on bioarchive. In your opinion, what are some of the more interesting tidbits that are worth highlighting in this context? Okay. Okay, great. I think there's um, some really incredible work coming on to bioarchives constantly. I know that a lot of, um, so Mount Sinai has been really spearheading a lot of research um, and they have become really kind of heart located at the new epicenter of, of coronavirus in the world. But they, even before that, um, we're really spearheading a lot of research. And I want to mention that one of the things that they're doing that I think is very powerful is um, people who are not going into the lab because they're not working on, on coronavirus directly have actually been um, volunteering to review papers on coronavirus because there's so many papers flooding bioarchives right now. And um, people who work on coronavirus are obviously so overwhelmed with all the research they're trying to do. Um, it's hard for them to keep on track um, of reviewing all of these papers that are coming out. And of course, some of the papers um, have, you know, really need to be reviewed. Um, and um, some of the papers are really great and ready to go as is, and it's fantastic that we get that information in real time. Um, without having to wait for it to show up in a, in a, you know, a journal. One of the things I want to say is that I would definitely point people towards um, some of these reviews by Mount Sinai um, because they're trying to focus on some of the most relevant papers um, and, um, and, and putting together both critical reviews and good reviews um, for example, there was so much hype around that first um, hydroxychloroquine paper with um, where um, I think if you read their review on that, um, it's incredibly insightful um, and points out some of the most, you know, concerning features about um, where we, we might be able to overconclude from that. And indeed, the second study that came out on hydroxychloroquine didn't see an effect. So it's something that we really have to be kind of looking at and, and thinking about in real time. I think one of the most exciting things um, is uh, a paper that came out looking at um, really profiling the immune responses here in, in such a way that to highlight what might be um, potential drug interactions to try to modify. I think there's a gold mine in that data set. Um, and they specifically didn't patent anything on there so that um, people would really just actively start to look into this. Um, so I think that's um, one of the papers that's been really exciting. I think, um, of course, from Florian Kramer's group, um, profiling the, these early serology responses, I think we're gonna need a much better idea of the serology because here's where we, um, currently most places are, are testing by PCR, RT-PCR. And um, that lets us do the direct test. Do you have virus in that nasopharyngeal swab? Do you have virus in a nasal swab? Do you have virus in a throat swab? You know, wherever they're testing, do you have virus in your feces? So whatever site they're testing, they can say yes or no. Do you have virus there? 
Um, and within the limitations of the false positives and false negatives of that test, that's giving us a very nice moment to moment picture. But as we want to try to come back out of this and understand who's already immune, who is safe to go back out um, and repopulate the workforce, who is um, not gonna be at, at significant risk um, to themselves and to others, we, for that we have to get serology. And I think there we really need to try to understand um, which are, are really good neutralizing antibody responses and have tests that we can test people for those. Um, and, and that'll also further boost our efforts if we are gonna try to use convalescent serum from people who've recovered to cure other people, if we can quickly identify who has made good neutralizing antibodies, um, that will really boost that effort at isolating those antibodies as well. Yeah, and um, or at least collecting serum from the right people, yeah. Thank you for pointing out uh, Florian Kramer's uh, efforts, because I think that since this started, he's put out some tremendous work and uh, it's really worth highlighting. Um, you mentioned immune profiling of the, uh, profiling of the immune response. Uh, could you please, could you maybe elaborate on that for a couple of sentences? Sure, I can. Um, and actually, while I'm bringing that up, I'm going to also mention another study that I, um, some work that I think is also incredibly exciting um, and important to highlight is, um, is the use of Nextrain here um, and all the sequencing and availability in real time of this sequencing information. Um, so what happened there is that the Seattle flu study was collecting um, samples from people who had flu-like illness. So, um, you know, the symptoms that were um, consistent with flu, and they had a lot of people who were testing negative, um, and they had those samples banked. And as coronavirus started to um, become more and more of an issue, they really fought to get permission to test those samples. And um, in testing those samples, they discovered that there was a local cluster in Washington state that had been circulating local transmission, not travel acquired. So from the first travel case into Washington, since then there had been this circulating cluster. So they identified the first community um, within the United States um, where they were able to show mutation by mutation um, that there was local transmission. Um, everybody um, who has been um, looking at this next train data, um, which is all, all available and um, on GitHub, um, has been really able to glean so much from it about how the virus has been evolving because, um, of course, as an RNA virus, there are mutations that are accumulating over time that we can really use in this kind of detective work. So I think that if more communities could get their sequencing online, there would be so much that we could learn about local clusters, and it would really help people kind of estimate the extent to which um, there's local transmission in different places um, and, and the extent of the outbreak in a, in a, in a particular cluster. Um, yeah, and um, in many ways, uh, the genetics is very similar to the, uh, to the tree barks, where you can look at tree slices and see what happened over the years. 
exactly exactly it's those phylogenous trees um where where you can just see it exactly like that if you if you view it rooted you can see with each given mutation you can really see the tree form so i'll let you find this last thing and then i have one more question for you okay Okay, great. I have found it. Okay, so um, this paper is making a map of um, COVID-19 and human protein interactions to reveal drug targets. Um, from um, the lab of um, Nivan Krogan. Okay, that's fantastic. I'm going to actually Let's write this down as well. So I have one last question. And um, I reached out to you following your excellent video that you gave at Stanford. And um, earlier in this, in this discussion, you said, let's talk about what we know, which I think is a very grounded and appreciated approach to, uh, to the situation, to this crisis. Over the past few weeks, there has been an influx of editorials and commentaries and interviews about the epidemic. And many notable people from different fields have chimed in with their opinions and ideas. Um, there has been modeling by biophysicists and bioinformaticians and many conversations with virologists and other experts. And it's a bit of a mess for a layperson to understand what can they trust at the moment. So in your opinion, could you recommend some guidelines when, when, when someone is reading one of these articles in the New York Times or the, the Washington Post, how to assess whether the commentator is the right person to listen to. Yeah, I think that's a really hard thing. I think that Twitter has actually lately been trying to start and go and give check marks um, to real epidemiologists and infectious disease experts um, who, who have large following bases to, to try to help people um, identify who they can trust. Um, I think that that still doesn't, of course, there's, you know, there's a lot of experts who don't have large following bases and who um, are still very trustworthy. Um, the, the thing here is, I think, while we do need a lot of cross-discipline interaction, so it is important to listen um, to the engineers who know a lot about virus transmission and how it survives on different surfaces and how it spreads. Um, I think a lot of attention at this moment needs to go to real well-respected epidemiologists um, and, and public health officials who, who really understand the complexity of the problem. So I think what's hard here is that a lot of people are good at math and think, okay, I, you know, there's some numbers here and I can plug this in, but um, the modeling that's involved in, in these kinds of predictions is actually quite complicated and it's a whole field, you know? So I think people who think that they, you know, uh, can do some quick epidemiology um, are taking the microphone away from the people we really need to be listening to right now. Um, but, um, but that said, I do also think that a lot of scientists are doing their best in trying to reach out in their own communities and trying to break down some very complex information in a way that's very helpful. 
I think that's wonderful. And I think all of us should be doing that. And I think all of us should be kind of offering help in our own family circles and community circles and neighborhoods and kind of our own realm of influence to really try to break down what of this is credible and what's not. It's very tricky because everybody is hearing scientists discuss these things in real time on bioarchives, on Twitter, on all these different platforms on LinkedIn. So, um, you know, people are, are going on and, and talking about real-time information, even as we haven't yet had time to review these papers and really think about them and understand these studies and do them carefully enough. Um, so that's very hard. Um, one thing that I wish is I wish that all of the communication was coming out of the CDC or, you know, places that I wish every country was really just designating that their own agencies that are dedicated to this were the ones providing the information. I think it's really important that we don't politicize all of this um, and, and, and that we really have a way of, of listening to the people um, that we need to be trusting. So, um, um, yeah, I think, I think this is a moment to really, to really be listening to what the CDC is saying. Um, if you're in the U.S. and in other countries, um, to really be listening to, to the people who, who know how to um, communicate with the public about this kind of infectious disease outbreak. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And um, I think that there, there are some concerns that the CDC is moving too slowly, and it's possible that some of it is related to politics and fundings and things A that the U.S. has been struggling with. Um, I will say I that... Mean, oh, go ahead. So I just want to interject that when this started, the CDC had 700 um, openings that weren't filled because of hiring freezes. So we are definitely looking at, you know, an agency that was, that was caught you know, in a form that's, that's kind of gutted and understaffed. Um, that said, we have incredible and brilliant people there um, who, who have the expertise on hand um, to really solve a lot of these problems. And so we have to give them a voice. Yeah, and uh, it's also important to point out that um, about a year ago, we had a, a disastrous government shutdown in the U.S. that led to severe damage. Um, the good and bad news is that there's a lot of, um, a lot of power to states in the U.S. So, for example, New Jersey has a fantastic uh, health commissioner. Her name is uh, Judy uh, Persichelli, and she's been doing a phenomenal job providing New Jersey residents with information and guidance that is really balanced, but this is going to be state by state. So I think, I, I think if I understand you correctly, the main take home is one, listen to epidemiologists and to the CDC and to and to at Anthony Fauci, you know, at the government level. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So, you know, that's a voice that, that at the kind of, at the national level, we should all be listening to. And, um, and even if there is a positive opinion from a renowned scientist, just remain indoors for now. Yeah, and I think especially, I think, I think the biggest problem that we're seeing is that people are desperate for, what can I do? Yeah. How can I protect myself? How could I cure this? Uh, everybody is so desperate for that information. And, um, and a lot of scientists have 
shut down their labs and they're staying home and they're staying put and they're bored and they're reading and they're, they've got lots of great hypotheses and the hypotheses are testable. Um, but I would caution that until we've tested some of these, um, I really do think we should, we should try to keep as much of what we're communicating to what we really know and not, you know, um, this might work if this and that happened in this context, so. Yeah, so um, I think that's my questions. Anything else you want to add? Any messages to our listeners? Um, I, um, um, I think that um, what, we're, what we're in for seeing right now is that a lot of different states are now reaching, so, so one thing that we have going on in the US is that we have multiple different cities and states going off at the same time. And um, the most important thing is if everybody stays inside and prevents themselves from being able to get infected by not being around other people and really trying to be very precautious and really trying to wash hands and, and do everything that they can um, to try to not get infected right now. I think no matter what we do, we're gonna see numbers rising over the next few weeks. And I know that people have made a lot of sacrifices. I know there's a lot of people out of work. I know there's a lot of people whose hours have been reduced. I know that people have canceled weddings and graduations and, you know, we're going to be grieving about what's happening right now. The sacrifices we're all making for a long time, but we've already started making those sacrifices. And the thing I would, the last thing I would just say, the most important message for people is that we have to stay the road because the best tool in our toolbox right now is shelter in place. And um, if we can keep the hospitals from surging and needing more beds than they have, then we will keep our health system intact and we will come out of this in, you know, in, in, in two to three months, we'll, we'll be looking at a very different picture. And, and I know that's a long time and I know that's a lot to think about um, staying in this situation for that long. But really, 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 it's, it's the best tool that we have right now until we have a vaccine, until we have better drugs available. Um, I really, I think we've just got to see this through um, and stay home. Um, and uh, and, and I, I think the one unfortunate message that, that got across in the early days was, you know, let's enact these measures for two weeks, three weeks. Um, and then let's revisit it. And that, that was never where we, we weren't, we didn't act early enough to be able to do a two week shutdown. Um, and by the point at which we acted, you know, at this point in the country, we're, we're looking at, um, you know, a couple of months, not a couple of weeks, um, where over the next couple of weeks, we're just going to be in a, a worse situation than we are in right now. Thank you. And honestly, this is probably the most important point, just shelter in place and let this ride through and just wait. So first of all, thank you so much uh, for coordinating this interview on such a short notice and for all this helpful information. And um, I want to tell our listeners, please check out the coronavirus for non-virologist video. It's a terrific listen. Um, 
on one hand, it's from like a week and a half ago, so it's already out of date. But yeah, I will. I'm gonna try to put out an updated one. So hopefully, that will be, be wonderful. Out soon. But yeah. I was listening to it when it just came out, and I'm like, oh my god, this makes this makes everything so much clearer. Um, I'm really glad. So thank you again, Mickey, and I yeah. also want to thank, thank our you. yeah, and I also want to thank our editor, Heather Dwyer, and um, Astrolab designer in chief, Mihai Kuman. And please make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, uh, on LinkedIn for future episodes. And uh, please check out uh, Mickey's Twitter feed. Uh, she's been posting regularly. And uh, check out the, uh, the video. I'm going to put it in the uh, description. Thanks again. Okay, great. Thank you.